Who was Shimi Lovett? And how did a flamboyant Scottish aristocrat come to be head of the British commandos? Turns out that patrician charm goes a long way when it comes to leading an attack on the Nazis. Welcome to season three of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host, Giles Milton. And today we're talking about the extraordinary beach assault led by Lord Lovett and his band of British commandos. In common with the American Rangers, the British commandos were the elite of the elite, a highly trained group of soldiers who were to land on Sword Beach, the most easterly of the five landing beaches. They were under the leadership of Simon Fraser, the 15th Lord Lovett, a flamboyant Scottish chieftain with a patrician charm and an unbreakable spirit. One of his friends described him as having indefinable star quality. Only Lord Lovett would have the swagger to go into battle with a Highland bagpiper at his side. And surely only he would wear a monogrammed shirt under his battle dress. He was known to his friends as Shimi Lovett, an anglicised version of his traditional Gaelic name. Just 33 years of age, Lord Lovett had the wind-blown air of an Elizabethan pirate adventurer. Appointed commander of the 1st Special Service Brigade, the Commandos, he had vowed to create the finest unit ever to go into battle. In common with other frontline leaders, Lovett knew that only the best prepared men would pull through D-Day. To this end, he trained them halfway to death with enforced marches and full-scale practice assaults on the coastline of southern England. His men referred to him as the Mad Bastard, a term of endearment. They admired his flamboyance just as they loved his swaggering confidence. Lord Lovett was a showman and D-Day was to be his greatest act. Lovett understood something of paramount importance in everything that was to come. To win a war, you needed to understand the psychology of those who were fighting it. You needed to fire them up and make them believe in themselves. At times, that meant putting on a spectacular show, one so loud and exuberant that it would be remembered for years to come. And that's why, when the commandos had embarked at Portsmouth on the previous evening, Lovett had planned it to unfold like some warlike version of a Mardi Gras carnival, with colour, festivity and, most of all, noise. It began with his personal bagpiper, Bill Millin, blasting out favourite tunes from his native Scotland. Next, Lovett got the various captains to play their gramophones through the ship's loudspeakers. Everyone was on deck laughing and shouting and the radio playing away with swing music, said one commando. What a feeling. I do not think anyone had a care in the world. Others felt a burst of patriotism. I never loved England so truly as at that moment said the commando Reginald Barnes. The channel crossing that followed was extremely rough and many of the men were violently seasick. Only Lord Lovett seemed immune. He'd borrowed the captain's bunk and was sleeping soundly. I can snore through any form of disturbance, he would later say, provided I go to bed with a clear mind. As they neared the French coastline, Lord Lovett got dressed and encouraged his men with a rousing call to arms. The men had a gulp of rum as they came within reach of the German coastal guns. When Lovett stood up to survey the scene, water spouts erupted all around him. The landing craft broached the shore in tight arrowheads and they were soon so close that they could hear the crash of the breakers. 
On Lovett's landing craft, the commander, Rupert Curtis, stepped up the power as he prepared to cut through the shallows. I'm going in! He was answered by other cries from landing craft all around. Stand by the ramps! Lower away there! The commandos were hitting the beach at sword. Their first sight was a shocking one, as one of the commandos would later recall. Bodies lay sprawled all over the beach, some with legs, arms and heads missing, the blood clotting in the sand. The sound was even worse, like an animal in pain. The moans and screams of those in agony blended with the shriek of bullets and the whining of shells. The commandos knew better than to hang around at the water's edge. They fanned out as they sprinted up the beach, dodging the heavy fire. Yet they were not immune to danger, and Lovett saw many of those close to him gunned down. Lovett's personal bagpiper, Bill Millen, leapt off the ramp just behind his lordship, landing in waist-deep water. My kilt floated to the surface, and the shock of the freezing cold water knocked all feelings of sickness from me. The commando in front of him was hit in the face by a lump of flying shrapnel and collapsed into the foaming water. Lovett himself could be seen striding through the shallows with scarcely a care in the world. It was as if he were immune to danger. Commander Rupert Curtis was watching the unfolding scene from the bridge of his landing craft. It was incredibly striking. Every minute detail of that scene seemed to take on a microscopic intensity and nothing more than the sight of Shimmy Lovett's tall, immaculate figure striding through the water, rifle in hand. As he paced briskly out of the surf, Lovett turned to Bill Millen and began one of the more unlikely snatches of conversation to take place on the beach that morning. Would you mind giving us a tune? He said as a line of bullets zipped into the sand. Millen couldn't believe his ears. He'd just seen a comrade crumpled dead in the water. They were all in grave danger of getting hit. You must be joking, surely. What was that? said Lovett. Millen knew better than to protest. If he was going to die, he might as well do so playing the bagpipes. Well, what tune would you have in mind, sir? How about Road to the Isles? Now, would you want me to walk up and down, sir? Yes, that would be nice. Yes, walk up and down. Shellfire was exploding and mortars were thumping into the dunes, yet Bill Millen strolled up and down the beach, blasting his pipes for all he was worth. At one point, he felt a hand slap his shoulder. It was his sergeant. What are you effing playing at, you mad bastard? You're attracting all the German attention. Millen might have retorted, as he did in years to come, that Lord Lovett was the mad bastard, not him. He would later learn from two captured Germans that they didn't shoot him because they simply couldn't believe their eyes. They thought he was Dummkopf, simple-minded. His lordship had drilled an urgent dictum into his men. He who hesitates is lost. It was one they followed to the letter. Few hesitated on the beach that morning, least of all the men of Six Commando, who moved like a knife through enemy butter. They blasted a passage off the beach, achieving in seconds what the lads of the East Yorks had failed to do over the course of 40 minutes. The German defenders didn't stand a chance as two of Lovett's most efficient officers, Alan Pyman and Donald Kolkohan, blew their way through this stretch of the Atlantic Wall, mopping up pillboxes and the immediate strongpoints with hand grenades and portable flamethrowers. Bren machine guns were used to devastating effect, spraying lead into every beachside redoubt. 
Lovett chuckled with delight as he glimpsed his old friend Derek Mills Roberts bounding through exploding shells and mortars as if he were invincible. It was not long before the Germans threw in the towel. They were simply outclassed by the commandos. Soon a trickle of grey uniforms appeared, bewildered men in shock, their hands clasped behind their backs. They were taken prisoner and then lined up prior to being sent down to an assembly point on the beach. The thrust in land was to be spearheaded by the 500 men of 6 Commando. Their most important goal that morning was to link up with the British airborne soldiers who, as we heard in an earlier episode of Unknown History, had captured several key bridges during the night. As the commandos pushed inland, they were hit with everything the Germans could fire. Shells, mortars, oil bombs and the so-called moaning mini, which indeed made a low moaning sound, like a cow in labour. But they gave as good as they got. Alan Pyman managed to creep up to one pillbox with his portable flamethrower, along with a couple of others. They incinerated everyone inside. Their commander recorded the event with an enthusiasm that verged on glee. I know they'd been bursting to use it. The men stumbled across gruesome sights as they advanced. One of the most noteworthy was a leg standing upright in a polished jackboot. The whereabouts of the second boot, the missing leg, and indeed the rest of the German body was a complete mystery. Lord Lovett joined them in Saint-Aubin, an unremarkable little village some two miles from the coast. Here, his lordship's run of good fortune almost came to an untimely end. A sniper's bullet smacked into the wall beside my head with a crack like a whip. The sniper made Lord Lovett more cautious, but only a little. Piper Bill Millin found him still striding along as if he was out for a walk around his estate. At one point, his lordship noticed an enemy sniper hiding in a nearby cornfield. After asking for his hunting rifle, he got down on one knee and fired, scoring a perfect hit. It was not so different from stalking deer, except that tracking Germans was altogether more exhilarating. Lovett sent two of his men to fetch the dead body, rather as if they were bagging a hunting trophy. Right, Piper, said Lovett to Millen. Start to play the pipes again. He was intending to give John Howard and his men who'd captured the inland bridges the greeting of their lives. He'd promised Howard that he'd arrive on the dot of noon and was acutely aware that time was running out. But as his men approached the village of Benneville, site of one of the bridges captured by Howard, he did his best to make that midday rendezvous. Right, Piper, he said, start the pipes again. The sight of the commandos gave renewed confidence to the beleaguered men of the airborne division who'd feared they were soon to be annihilated. They shouted, they cheered, they threw caution to the wind. Now, you jerry bastards, they yelled, you've got a real fight on your hands. As Lord Lovett approached the bridge, he asked the whereabouts of John Howard. Howard appeared seconds later and held out his hand, addressing Lovett with evident relief. We are very pleased to see you, old boy, he said. I, replied Lovett, we are pleased to see you. And then he glanced at his watch and uttered the words that would later be made famous by the Hollywood film The Longest Day. Sorry, we are two and a half minutes late. He shook Howard's hand once again, only gripping it slightly tighter this time. Today, history is being made, he said. Howard would have liked to utter something equally memorable, but he was too dog-tired. About bloody time, he said with a grin. They were the only words he could muster. 
the commandos had fought a superb running battle against the Germans and advanced inland with supreme confidence. Their success was of vital importance to the success of D-Day. In reaching the village of Beneville and securing it, they'd also secured the entire eastern flank of the D-Day landing zone. It was a good day's work. This week's unknown history snippet takes up the story of Hitler and his senior generals in Bavaria. What were they doing? And how did they react to the landings? News of the nighttime parachute landings had been phoned through to Bavaria at about four in the morning, but there was precious little information about how many men had been landed. Several of Hitler's senior generals were alerted, but they decided not to wake the Fuhrer. He'd been given a sedative by his physician, which meant it would be extremely difficult to rouse him. One of the generals also feared that he might start one of his endless nervous scenes. When Hitler finally awoke and was told of the invasion, he was initially quiet and composed and kept telling everyone that this was not the main invasion. But he later became quite excitable. Well, it's begun, he said to all around him. If we repel the invasion, then the scene in the war will be utterly transformed. His generals were not so upbeat. They knew that if the German forces did not repel the Allies and fast, then the invasion would become unstoppable. Hitler would have lost the Second World War. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unknown History. In the next episode, we'll be meeting a colourful German SS tank commander who was given just one order on D-Day, to drive the Allies back into the sea.